God, it is uh, so good to be able to gather and uh, celebrate the resurrection and um, join together uh, that there is even um, a reason for us to gather uh, this morning and, and every other Sunday. And as we uh, just sang, um, we, uh, we, we marvel at the wondrous mystery that the God of life was slain by death, but no grave could ever restrain you and that you are alive and, and your resurrection is a, is a foretaste of, of our own resurrection, uh, the unwavering hope that we have in you. And so, Lord, as we um, celebrate that this morning, we also just think of those on the other side of the globe in Sri Lanka that are, are suffering. And, and Father, we do ask that you would um, send your Holy Spirit to comfort them. God, that they would find comfort and an unwavering hope in what you have accomplished on that first Easter Sunday thousands of years ago. Bless this time in your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again, everyone. It is, again, great to, to be with you here this morning, and it's a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. Um, this morning, we're going to be in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. And I find these verses particularly compelling uh, in light of Easter because they give us a rock-solid confidence, first, in what God accomplished at Easter, and then second, in how God now forever relates to his people. And this is a particularly important passage in light of what we uh, talked about earlier in our service about what took place um, this morning in Sri Lanka, uh, this idea of the, the good news of Easter, of the crucifixion, of, of the, the victorious resurrection, and brings it into today. It brings it into uh, a world where we still suffer, where we still face hardship. No matter how good or bad our life may be, this text brings the truth of the resurrection into our right here and right now. It takes a historical reality of what God actually did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, brings it to today, and, and asks this question, how do I reconcile the reality of the resurrection with the imperfections of my life right now? And that's an important question that I think all of us have to wrestle with at some point. Easter Sunday is, is here, we celebrate God's victory over sin and death, and then and Monday comes, or, or maybe for some of you, uh, Sunday afternoon comes, and the mundaneness uh, of life comes rushing back. And so the question for us is, is, does Easter not just transform our future, this, this future hope that we have in what God is going to do for us, but also our present, our, our right here and right now? And this is a burning question that was facing the church in Rome when Paul wrote to them. They had received this gospel with joy, but then life hit them hard. They were in the minority in this pagan capital of the entire world. They were looked at with suspicion by their co-workers and by their family members who were not Christians. They were the objects of, of ridicule from their neighbors. And years earlier, many of them had actually been even kicked out of their homes for a, a number of years, hadn't been allowed to uh, return to, to Rome for, for almost a decade. Persecution was on the horizon and this is on top of all of the hardships that come with just living in a broken world. The, the idea of debt, sickness, relational turmoil, death, natural disasters, on and on and on. And maybe you find yourself in a similar place this morning. You're so thankful for the good news of Easter, but at the same time, your life is still filled with hardship. 
A friend of mine uh, once described Easter as the moment, uh, kind of quoting um, J.R.R. Tolkien in, in The Lord of the Rings, described Easter as the moment where all bad things come untrue. And I love that description. I think it's so true that, that Easter is the beginning of all the bad things in life beginning to come untrue. And, and yet at the same time, we, we can look at our lives and we know, hey, it's still filled with a lot of bad things. People still lose their jobs. People still face failure. People still face doubt about all of this resurrection, all of this Easter stuff. Did it actually, actually happen? People still struggle with sin. People still backslide in their battle against sin. People still get hurt by those that are closest to them. And it's in this context that Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, this incredible declaration of the confidence that we can have in God's love for us. In spite of whatever may be facing you today, we can be confident in God's love for us because of the resurrection. Romans 8, 31 through 39 are written plain and simply to address the doubts you may have about your place before God. These verses are meant to take our eyes off of our present circumstances and fix them forever on the person of Jesus. And if there's just one truth that you take away from this, this morning's passage, I hope it's this. All of it just boils down to this. There is not a millisecond of your life where God is not for you and where God is not lavishing his love upon you. There is not a millisecond of your life where God is not for you and lavishing his love upon you. Now, I need to qualify that because as we see, uh, or we will soon see, Paul isn't speaking to everyone. He, he might not be talking to you this morning. That, that promise, that glorious promise might not be for you this morning. Consider how Paul begins this chapter of assurance, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul begins this chapter by saying that because of what Jesus has done, there is now no condemnation before God. For whom? Well, it's for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are found in Christ, if you've received this gift that has been freely given, then you have an unshakable assurance that no matter what your present circumstances may say, God is for you, that his love will never fall or never fail. There is not a millisecond of your life where God is not for you and lavishing his love on you. Now, let's consider this assurance that we can have in these truths. God is, is for his people, and, and God loves his people with his death-conquering love, as we see here in these few verses. So please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, uh, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Romans 8 uh, first speaks to our present circumstances by reminding us that the resurrection unequivocally declares God is for us. Consider verse 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Paul begins this passage with awe. He has just spoken at length about this incredible glory that has assured the people of God. And here he, he pauses to collect his figurative breath. What shall we say to these things? How, how can I possibly find the appropriate words to describe what God has done for us? He then describes what he means by these things when he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And that phrase, if God is for us, or God is for us, is a phrase that's oftentimes used by Christians, but consider them, just pause, consider them deeply, the significance of those words. Incredibly beautiful words that God is for us. Or as, as Paul describes us in Romans chapter 8, God's children. No, no wonder that Paul is left nearly speechless on this subject. That the God of the universe, the, the creator of distant galaxies and the Lord of every atom and, and subatomic particle in all of creation is for us. In spite of our rebellion against God, God has chosen to make us, not, not his slaves, God hasn't chosen to wipe us from existence, but God has freely chosen to make us his daughters and his sons at the cost of his own son. Now to put the beauty of these words into perspective, consider the alternative, that God is not for us, but instead that God is against us. Can you think of anything more terrifying? To live without the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things to good for his children. To live without the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation. To live without the promise of Romans 8, 18, that there is a future glory awaiting the children of God. No, to, to think that God is against us is the most terrifying prospect that anyone could ever imagine. And, and the reality that we have to recognize is that we will spend forever, we will spend eternity in one of these two camps. Either God is for us for all eternity, culminating in this glorious inheritance that God has for his Son, and by extension, his sons and daughters. Or God is against us for all of eternity. And if you are in Christ, this incredible glory, this incredible joy is yours. God is for us. Now, this promise doesn't mean that God prevents bad things from happening to us. It doesn't mean that whatever we want, God will give it to us. It doesn't mean that God protects us or, or his children from, from suffering and pain like a helicopter parent tries to do today. God allows his, parent, his children to, to face hardship. He allows them to face suffering. Paul is very aware of that firsthand experience. He discusses that at length in Romans chapter 8. But to declare that God is for us is to know that nothing can ever effectively stand against us. 
That's what Paul means in the latter half of verse 31 when he says, who can be against us? Who could possibly be against us if God is for us? Life experience teaches us that many people are against us, that we are strangers and aliens in this world, that we follow our master's footsteps and are oftentimes despised and rejected in this world. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We suffer loss in this world no matter the source. We can get sick. We lose friends. Our trust with others is broken. Dreams are dashed. Many of us know that, that people intend us harm. But Paul tells us the result of all these things in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Many people may be against us, but for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, then all things will be ineffective. God will take all of these losses, all of these hurts, all of the the shame, and he'll work them all together in this incredible masterpiece of glory in your life. The the aim of the enemy will be thwarted. The pain uh, of your lost friends, those those who, who leave you behind, that produces a glory in you. The sicknesses of life stitch together this tapestry that makes us ever more like Christ. If God is for you, he does not spare you these things but you can be confident that he will work them all together in your life to produce this unimaginable masterpiece of glory. Paul restates this again in verse 32, the following verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice Paul's logic here. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser, from the hard to the easy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was a teenager, my, my parents were masters of using this logic, uh, but oftentimes with an exasperated, um, okay, all the time, with an exasperated tone uh, with me. And they would say, you know, Jordan, if you can clean the entire house to get ready for your friends co- to come over, the, the hard, you, you spend all of this time getting ready for them, if you can do that, then why can't you clean up your room when we ask you to? The easy. They argue from the hard to the easy to, to point out uh, an inconsistency in my life. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've used that logic as well. Now, Paul doesn't use that logic here to point out this inconsistency in the way God works. God, of course, is not an inconsistent God at all. He, he's not saying, come on, God, you've, you've done this hard thing, then you can surely help us out now. You can surely do the easy thing now. No, Paul recognizes that God is is fully consistent, fully trustworthy. And so he says, if God was willing to give up his son, if God has done this hard thing, then you can be completely confident that he will give us all the spiritual blessings, the entire glorious inheritance that has been won for us in Christ, the easy. God has done the hard. We can be confident that God will do the easy. Now consider a moment this hard thing that God does. God willingly gives up his son, his own son, his only son to death for us. Now many of you know that I have two sons and there's something special about that love a father has for his son. It's not greater uh, than than my, my love for my wife or the love I have for my daughter. It's just different. There's a special element there because they're more than anyone else in my family. They're the ones who, who look like me. And if you have seen my kids, my sons, you, you know that that's the case. 
They, more than anyone else, will be the ones who pick up my habits, both good and bad. They're the ones who, to use a biblical term, are, are in my image, the ones who most reflect me. There's nothing quite like the, the love of a father for his son. And the father willingly gives up his son, his only son, for us. God is indeed for us. Consider how one pastor describes this. The point of verse 32 is that this, this love of God for his one and only son was like a massive uh, Mount Everest obstacle standing between him and our salvation. Here was an obstacle almost insurmountable. Could God, would God overcome his, his cherishing, admiring, treasuring, white-hot, affectionate bond with his son and deliver him over to be lied about and betrayed and abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross and pierced with a sword like an animal being butchered? Would he really do that? Would he hand over his son, the son of his love? If he would, then whatever goal he is pursuing could never be stopped. If that obstacle were overcome, in the pursuit of his good, every obstacle would be overcome. You see, God has done the hard thing. He gave up his son. And God is fully consistent. He is never shifting. We can be fully confident that he will do the easy thing because he has done the hard thing. He will give us the inheritance that was won for us by Christ. He will indeed give us every good thing. John Flavel was a pastor in the UK in the 1600s. He describes this in, the, in this way. It's just a, a powerful quote. I want to I read it to you. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? How is it imaginable that God should withhold after this spiritual or temporal blessing for his people? How shall he not call them effectually, justify them freely, sanctify them thoroughly, glorify them eternally? How shall he not clothe them, feed them, protect them, deliver them? Surely, if he would not spare his own son, one stroke, one tear, one groan, one sigh, one circumstance of misery, it can never be imagined that he should, after all this, deny and withhold from his people, for whose sakes all this was suffered, any mercies, any comforts, any privilege, spiritual or temporal, which is for their good. God indeed is for us. No wonder Paul is nearly speechless. We see this another way in verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, because God is for us, because God has done the hard thing in giving up his son for us, then we can have confidence that any charge leveled against us will ultimately fail. Yes, charges are brought against us all the time. Our own consciences accuse us. The devil accuses us. Oftentimes, we're falsely accused by those who are around us. Stephen is the first martyr in the New Testament, and he dies because of false accusations that are brought against him. But we can be confident that none of these charges will stick. Why? It's because God has done the hard thing. In offering up his son, his only son, he has justified us. He has made us right before God. But let's take that a step further. Not only did God do the hard thing in offering up his son, he did it while we were still hostile toward him, not wanting anything to do with him. 
Consider the words of Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If God did the hard thing when you weren't his child, when you were a wicked rebel, when you were his enemy, when he was the only one who had every right and justification to condemn you forever, but instead chose to send his son on your behalf, if all of that is true, and and we, and we know that that is true, then who could possibly condemn you now? God is for us. Now, I want to, to pause and press pause on Paul's train of thought here briefly and just dive into the significance of the second half of verse 34 here. I think that uh, second half of 34 is the linchpin on which this entire conversation holds together. To this point, Paul has been saying over and over, God is for you if you were his child. There is no fear or condemnation for those, from those around you. There is no need to doubt God's commitment to you. If God has done the hard thing in offering up his son, even when you are his enemy, you can be confident that he will not leave you now that you are his child. But Paul recognizes that all of this hangs on one thing, and that is the events that took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They had to have actually taken place. Jesus had to have actually died. Jesus had to have actually rose from the dead. Jesus has to actually now reign. Jesus needs to be the one who is interceding for us now. Consider again the second half of of Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The entire Christian faith hinges on what we remember today. If Jesus did not actually die on the cross, or if he did die on the cross, but it was just a mistake, it wasn't a part of God's plan, it was just a cosmic accident, then we are no longer justified before God. There is no assurance. There's only uncertainty. This question of confidence that Paul says, who can now condemn us, becomes, well, you better hope that you are good enough. You see, if we are wrong about Easter, if we are wrong about the empty tune, I'm just going to offer you some, some blunt advice. Don't waste your limited 80 or so years on earth with the church. Don't waste however much time you have on earth with the church. Seriously, if the, if the tomb was not empty, if Christ was not raised, then Christianity is the biggest scam on earth. And all this is a waste of time. Paul says as much in a letter to the church in Corinth. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, without the actual resurrection, there is no hope for us. There is no guarantee that we will be made right with God, that God is indeed for us. We instead are to be pitied. And the best thing that we can do with our life is to live it to its fullest right now, to eat and drink, because there is nothing else to live for, because tomorrow we die. There is no moralizing of this story that amounts to anything of worth. 
There are no good principles to learn. Everything, everything hinges, stands, or falls on this truth that Christ himself rose from the dead. John Updike, the great author of the previous century, wrote a short poem about Easter called Seven Stanzas at Easter. I love the way he he describes this or frames this point in the first stanza. He says this, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, then the church will fall. Everything we hope for, everything we believe is rooted in the historicity of events over the course of three or four days, thousands of years ago. That is what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice that he doesn't just stop with the cross and the resurrection. He also mentions two other things that are profoundly important for our assurance today, this Easter Sunday. First, he says that Jesus now reigns at the right hand of God. And second, he says that Jesus now intercedes for us. We can rest confident that God is for us because Jesus did indeed die on the cross and that he did indeed rise from the dead. As Paul so perfectly puts it, Acts chapter 29 Excuse me, Acts chapter 26, there isn't a 29th chapter in Acts. Acts chapter 26, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If there is a God, then it should not at all surprise us that he brought Jesus back from the dead. It should not at all surprise us that he has power over sin and death. It should not at all surprise us that Easter actually did happen thousands of years ago. But we don't stop there. Jesus continues to reign at the right hand of God. And Jesus, the one who died in our place and rose victoriously, is the one who intercedes for us. And anytime there is a charge or an accusation that is leveled against us, it is not you or me who defend ourselves. It is the risen, reigning, interceding Jesus who stands before God declaring, there is now no condemnation for this one who is found in me. God is indeed is for us. But the resurrection doesn't just give us confidence that God is for us, it also declares Christ's death-conquering love for his people. That's what the second half of this passage focuses on, that Christ's love is unending, never failing. Pick up in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul begins by asking a question that was probably more relevant in his day and age or more appropriate in his day and age than it is today, but I think it still rears its head in in different ways. His question is this, are, are trials and hardship is suffering in this life, evidence that God no longer loves us. You see, at our core, every single one of us defaults to a transactional relationship with God. 
That's why the gospel is so countercultural. The notion that something is freely given to us is just too good to be true. Even in the church, we have a tendency to put strings on this or conditions on this incredible truth. In fact, we would rather make it a transaction. I do this, and then you do that for me. Many times, this transactional view of interacting with God crops up when we face various hardships in our lives. You see, in ancient times, it was just assumed that when you suffer, it was because you have made God, or if you were pagan, you have made the gods angry. This is what the book of Job is ultimately about, specifically when his friends come to to argue with him. They claim that the reason Job is suffering, it's because he has offended God. At its core, there's this transaction that has taken place, according to Job's friends, that Job has done something wrong, he did X wrong, and so now God has punished him. Now here, Paul is writing to this group of Christians that are suffering hardships. They've heard the incredible news that God is for them. They've heard the incredible news of Easter and what God has done for them, but they continue to suffer hardship. They continue to suffer pain. They continue to suffer loss. And so the question naturally bubbles to the surface, am I suffering because God is mad at me? Am I suffering because I made God mad? Does he no longer love me? Now, today we may not ask that question in the same terms, but I think the struggle remains. It shows itself when we begin to to wonder why God lets us go through difficult times. We begin to wonder, well, God, don't you care about me? It shows itself when we begin to think, and though we would never word it this way, when we think that God owes us a good life based off of how faithful we are to him. Or if we were more faithful to him, then our life would be better or easier. It's a transaction at its core. It's not grace. So when Paul asks this question, who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ, he's asking a question that all of us, I think, wrestle with uh, to some degree or another because we default to this works-based transactional view of a relationship with God. When God doesn't measure up to my expectations of him, when I am disappointed by the life that I experience, the question is, has God stopped loving me? When we face tribulation, uh, this blanket term for all sorts of hardship and suffering to various degrees, is it proof that God has stopped loving us? When we face distress, when we're at our wit's end, when we are stressed, when we are anxious, when we are at the end of our rope, is it proof that God has stopped loving us? When we face persecution, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, either physical or emotional pain, is that proof that God has abandoned us? When we face famine or nakedness, or perhaps today a better way of of describing these uh, would be just a lack of any kind. When we don't have enough money in the bank to cover the bills, when we don't have enough resources to get ahead, when we're not sure how we're going to be able to make our basic needs met today or tomorrow or the next day, is that proof that God has abandoned us? When we face danger or uncertainty from countless directions, is that proof that God is mad at us? When we face the sword of euphemism for death itself, when we die, is that proof that God is mad at us? When we die early, is it proof that God is mad at us? And that's the question that's facing each of us to some degree. I get that God is for us, but does he ever stop being for us? Does he ever get fed up with us? Does he ever abandon us? Does he ever change his mind? Does he ever say, holy cow, never mind. I had no idea what I was getting into with that person. That's the question 
It's been asked throughout the ages. That's why Paul quotes uh, from the Old Testament, verse 36. It's somewhat awkwardly, but he's using it to, pro- to prove his point. that This is a question people have wrestled with forever. In verse 36, what is the answer? What's found in verse 37? Read it aloud with me, if you would. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. The question, has God forgotten us? Does God not love us anymore? Let's read the answer again. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. One more time. No, in all these things We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ, and because of his unending love for us, we are more than conquerors. We are not just victorious, we are utterly victorious. There isn't a word or a phrase that can fully communicate the surety of our victory in Christ because of his love for us. There is nothing that has ever faced us or that we will ever face that could make God remove his love for us. So stop looking at your present circumstances as proof, as though God is is mad at you or he said, oops, never mind. If God has loved you at at, at your worst, we already saw that he has. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still enemies, enemies of God, sinners, Christ died for us. If God has loved us at our worst, then we can be completely and utterly confident that God will never stop loving us. Nothing will ever prevent God from loving his people. Nothing in death, nothing in life, no spiritual powers, nothing facing you today, nothing facing you tomorrow, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing in hell, nothing or no one in all of creation, nothing hypothetical, no, nothing at all will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has done the hard thing by offering up his son while you were his enemy. He will not cease loving you now. When we began our time this morning, I I said the message of this text is simply this. If you are in Christ, there is not a millisecond of your life where God is not for you and lavishing his love upon you. God has already done the hard thing. You can be utterly confident that he will do the easy thing. This text stands as a warning and a promise. Perhaps a better way of putting that is it stands as an invitation and a promise. God is indeed for us if we are found in Christ. But make no mistake, if you are not in Christ, God will one day be against you. This passage is beautiful. It leaves me standing in awe, but just imagine or consider the terror of the opposite. What shall we say to these things? If God is against us, what hope do we have? Who shall defend us from the charges of God himself? Who will save us from his condemnation? Who will save us from tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or the final death or the second death? No, in all these things we are utterly without hope and to be pitied 
above all. This text is a warning and an invitation. It is an invitation to find that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is an invitation to to let go of trying to get to God through transactions and to find rest in his grace that is freely given to us at the cross. It is an invitation to find peace and rest, acceptance and meaning and love in the cross and the empty tomb. If God has offered up his son for his enemies while they were still his enemies, then there is no one who is too far gone for him. God has done the hard thing and will surely give you everything if you come to him. And if that's you this morning, then come. Find hope and peace and assurance. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you find yourself this morning not in Christ, call on the name of the Lord. This is an invitation. To find peace and rest in the God who is for you and will never stop lavishing his love upon you. But for those who are in Christ, this is an incredible promise. It's a message of assurance that nothing, nothing, nothing can possibly separate us from the love that God has for us. That God has done the hard thing. That God has done the impossible thing. Now we can rest in his love that has been proven for all of time. My favorite quote of all time is from Charles Spurgeon. It's on the unfailing love of God. I discovered it at a time of depression and anxiety, a time where I cognitively knew in my head that God loved me and and would never stop loving me, but that didn't sink down into my heart. And so as we close, I just want you to consider these words that are based off of loosely our passage in Romans chapter 8. Says this, I am sure that he would not love me so long, then leave off loving me. If he, indeed to be t- if he intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as unutterable as the grave, if he had not given his whole heart to me, I am sure that he would have turned from me long ago. He knew what I would be, and he has had long enough time to consider of it. But I am his choice, and there is an end of it. And unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble if he is but contented with me. And he is contented with me. He must be contented with me, for he has known me long enough to know my faults. He knew me before I knew myself. Yes, he knew me before I was myself. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God has loved you at your worst, and he did, the cross proves that, then he will surely love you to the very end. God has done the hard thing. He will surely give us all things. There is not a millisecond of your life where God is not for you and lavishing his love upon you. Let's pray. Father, we stand before this text, and I know personally I just always need to remind myself that your love will never fail.
that there is no condemnation for me because of Christ. That you have done the hard thing, that you loved me when I was your enemy, when I wanted nothing to do with you. And because of that, you will not stop loving me now. Father, I, I pray for these people this morning that they, uh, those who, who don't know you would come to see the incredible glory and beauty of what it means for God to be for us. That they would not continue to live in a place where God is against them, but instead that they would live in a way that God is for them. That they would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And God, for those of, of the, us here this morning that do know you, God, I pray that you would give us an unshakable confidence in your love. That the promises of the gospel would take deep, deep, deep root in our hearts. That we would be confident that because you have done the hard thing, we can count on you to do the easy thing and to continue to love us for all eternity. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.